As I was looking over the congregation this morning, I thought uh, maybe that gentleman who predicted the end of the world missed it by a week. (laughs) There's been a partial rapture, but I know a number of our folks are gone and uh, trust that they are having a refreshing time. This obviously is a very special weekend and a very special time of remembrance. It's Memorial Day, and we look back and we remember that there were people, men and women, throughout years gone by and even going on right now, who've sacrificed their lives so that we as a people could be free. There were people who gained for us our freedom through the shedding of their blood and through the sacrifice of their lives. And there are those that are maintaining our freedom by virtue of giving up their lives. And so we never want to minimize or fail to remember what an incredible price that has been paid for our well-being as Americans. And something that I can never remember ever doing is something I would like us to do this morning. I'd like us to sing taps. And some of you may be familiar with the words of the, the first verse of that, but I learned that there were two other verses that were written, and verses that express a rather lofty reality of uh, the one upon whom we trust for our ultimate freedom. And I would like us to stand in just a moment and sing this together. And I I realize we've probably never practiced this by singing any other time. Maybe maybe you have. But I read something that I think is rather uh, important for us to remember, and that is that it is customary when people sing taps that those who have not served in the military place their hand upon their heart and those who have served in the military salute. And so I would ask you to hold that while we sing these three verses. Would you stand with me and let's sing together taps. seated. I had the privilege of looking around as we were singing that, and I noticed many, many of you saluting. 
And I would say to you, though you did not have to pay the supreme sacrifice for our freedom, unless you had been willing to serve as well, we would not be able to have this freedom that we enjoy today. And I just want you to know we appreciate it. And we thank you for what you've done for our freedom as well. This is a very special weekend for other reasons as well. A number of young people have graduated from high school, and we had the commencement ceremony this past Friday evening in which I believe there were about 46, 47 graduates uh, from Highlands Christian Academy, and uh, we want to be praying for them as they go their separate ways. Some are going to the military. Some are going to work in different jobs. Some are going to college, and uh, regardless of where they're going, it's not going to be an easy task. Uh, we know that by virtue of the world that we live in. And as I, I think about our young people, I, I pity them in many respects. Who can they look at today and say, there is a person that serves as a role model for me. There's a person after whom I would like to fashion the pattern of my life. Think about the possibilities. Lady Gaga. Thousands and thousands of people gather in New York to listen to her sing and to watch her antics. Would that be a good role model? Uh, Charlie Sheen. Aren't these, you know, what's interesting is you all know their names, don't you? you? You know their names because these are people who are held before us as the celebrities of the day. These are the people whose lives have had great impact and, and they are very popular and, and by virtue of their capability of generating income, they have become very famous and, and very popular and in some cases very powerful. Um, 50 Cent. Some of you don't recognize him. But those who listen to rap music know who he is. Like kids driving through our parking lot with their radios blaring. Not a good role model. Um, maybe as we would approach something, maybe a little bit better, LeBron James... Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden we break into applause. I can't tell you a whole lot about his personal life, but he's a very good basketball player, that's for sure. Um, who would you look at? Who, who would you say, that's who I would like to fashion my life after? That's who I would like my children, my grandchildren, to fashion their lives after? I can't think of a lot of role models that I would look at today. But what's wonderful is, in the Word of God, He has given us a picture of a role model from a sinful, weak, failing human being just like us. And His name was Paul. Here in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, 
we are introduced to another segment of the Apostle's life. And in those early verses that uh, we look at, we're reminded of the things that had gone on before. And what we had learned in the immediately preceding verses is that Paul was a role model in the way he provided spiritual leadership. And we talked about seven different things that characterized him. And I just want to repeat these for you. He cared for his fellow laborers. He encouraged those whom he was leading. He cared for those who were in need. He was reliable. He was spiritually minded. He was consumed with the need to proclaim truth. And he was an instrument that God could use. And you'd look at that and you'd say, that establishes for each of us in whatever realm of leadership we move. Whether it's church, whether it's corporate, whether it's educational, whether it's home. We have leadership roles and those are characteristics that ought to be part of those. But as we go on further, we begin to learn more about Paul and the example that he sets as a role model. He is coming to the end of his third missionary journey. We've looked at the first two in some detail, and now that he's coming to the third, some things begin to unfold. And they're, they're just kind of little segments that appear as a little burst as you read through these first verses, if you would please look at verse 13. Something very interesting here. It says, Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Azos, there intending to take Paul on board. For so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. Now you remember, he had been in Troas with the others who were serving with him. And you remember what happened in Troas. He had been preaching for a long time. A young man by the name of Eutychus fell from a window, died, and his life was restored miraculously. And now Paul is leaving that area along with those who had been working with him. But he sends those who are working with him by boat from Troas to go down to Azos. And if you were to look at a map, you would find that these next series of events that are going to take place would be on the western shore, or pardon me, the eastern shore of the Adriatic Sea, the very western portion of what today we would look at and say is Turkey, the country of Turkey. So you have at least a, a mental image. Paul decides not to take the boat from Troas. He decides to walk. Why did he do that? The Bible doesn't tell us. But for some reason, he wanted to be alone. And I was reading one gentleman who was commenting on this verse and he made a, 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 what I think is probably a very correct observation. In all likelihood, Paul wanted time with the Lord. So much of his life has been spent in public ministry. So much of what he is doing is involved in ministering to others. And he needed to recharge. And as he walked, he walked alone. All his friends had gone on and in that lonely walk, you can be sure that a man like Paul is communing with his God, speaking his heart's desires to his Lord, and listening as the Lord, through the power of his Spirit, would impress upon Paul's heart and mind those things that he should do. So, 
he arrives at Azos and he meets up with his friends there. And they begin their journey southward. And as we go on to verse 14, it says, And when we, when he met us at Azos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tregillium. Not a whole lot is said about any of these places, other than they were ports into which the, the boat could dock, they could get their supplies, they could get rest, and then they would continue on their travels until you get to the end of verse 15, where it says, The next day we came to Miletus. Now, geographically, as he is making his way down this western shore of uh, Turkey, if you notice, one of the primary cities of his ministry in the past was Ephesus. And in the last segment of his trip, he actually sailed around Ephesus and didn't stop. And you would look at that and you'd say, now why, why wouldn't he stop there? There were so many of the brethren that were there. There were so many people that had been one to the Savior who were in the process of growing and developing as disciples of Christ. But Paul went right by them. And I think there's probably some pretty obvious reasons for that as well. At least in my way of looking at it. You remember what happened the last time he was in Ephesus? There was a terrible riot. Do you remember how the people had dragged some of the believers into the theater and they were yelling out for two hours praises to their goddess Diana? Uh, there was some tension there. But add to that something else. Apparently word had come back to Paul that there were people who were discrediting his ministry. And they were trying to undermine what Paul was doing. And that, that wasn't unique to the situation in Ephesus. Paul's going to find out that the same thing is going on in the, in the city of Corinth where they're trying to undermine his ministry. He's going to find out everywhere he goes where the power of God is demonstrated, there comes an invasion from demonic powers that lie and distort the truth. And so Paul knows that this is going on. But... He has a desire, and his desire is to be back in the city of Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. He actually wanted to be back there for the Passover, but he didn't make it. There were other things that had taken place, so he couldn't make it. But he knew if he went into Ephesus, there was going to be more trouble, and he was going to spend more time than he could afford to spend if he was going to make it back to be with the believers in the city of Jerusalem. And you'll remember, they were also bringing financial aid to the people there. So there was a need that the people had. So we're told here in verse 15 at the end, where it says, The next day we came to Miletus. 16 explains more for us. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So, that's his objective and that's his goal. But he cannot leave unaddressed the issues related to those who are undermining his ministry. So he does something that took several days. In verse 17, it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Paul knew that if the church was going to be protected, the men who were responsible for the spiritual leadership over that congregation were going to have to take a strong stand for the truth. 
And they were going to be the ones in whose hands the defense of the gospel was going to remain. And so he brings together the elders, those who are overseeing the welfare of the body of believers. And he begins to pour out his heart to them. And as he does that, what he does for us is he takes a canvas and he mixes the colors of a life and ministry that are lived for the glory of Christ and he begins to paint a picture on that canvas. And the picture is a self-portrait. Not with, not with any pride, but a self-portrait of what was accomplished in his life and the way it was accomplished so that these people could listen to what he had said before. The things that you have both heard and seen and, and you've experienced in me, those do. You need a role model? Here's one. And so he tells them, I am going to show you the purpose for which I lived and am living and it should parallel your purpose of life as well. And so he tells them, examine the purposes of my life and look at me to see what I've done so that you can follow my example. And he begins there in verse 16, or pardon me, verse 18, when he talks to them about the purpose of his ministry. First of all, in verse 18, he says this, And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. You know the first thing he's telling them to look at? Look at my life. A lot of people would be um, very nervous about telling folks to look at their lives. Because... Sometimes the things that people say and the way that people live don't match up. Paul had nothing to hide. He freely admitted that he was a sinner. As a matter of fact, from his perspective, he was the chiefest, the greatest of sinners. And he was a man who understood the weakness of his own flesh. He was a man that understood he walked in the same type shoes that you and I walk in. He faced the same temptations. He dealt with the same trials. He went through the same difficulties. And then far beyond what we've ever experienced or probably ever will. And he says, take a look at my life. I'm not perfect. But I'll tell you this. My life's an open book. What you see is what you get. I've got nothing to hide. One of the things that to me has been troubling has been the inconsistency of life that I've seen in believers in comparison to what they say. In, uh, when I, I'm going to take you back a lot of years. When I was uh, a teenager, my family and I were helping get established a branch church from the church that we were attending there in Pennsylvania. And the branch church got off to a, a good start. And, and things were going very well. And there was a Sunday school teacher in that church that was my teacher. It was a single lady, a German lady. And she loved the Lord. 
and faithfully carried out her tasks of teaching. And she would come well prepared, and she was just a delightful lady. And then a fellow showed up at the church, and he seemed to be just a tremendous guy. He knew the Word of God. Oh, and he dressed immaculately. I mean, he had on his coat and tie and white shirt, all the stuff that you're supposed to wear on Sunday. It was a facade. He spoke all the right words. Knew the Scriptures inside and out. Started to take leadership within the church. And in the process began to spend time with this dear Sunday school teacher. She was an older lady. She was single, had never married. And he began to spend time with her and began to go places and do things with her. And to make a long story short, one day his wife showed up. And you look at that and you say, what is going on? Paul said, take a look at my life. Yes, I know I'm weak. I know I'm a sinner. And I know I would disappoint you and I would fail you. However, what you see is what you get. I'm not hiding anything from you. Don't you hide You live consistently with the things that you say. And that's the way his life came down. As you look back at the events of his life, you know that this man was an honest man. This man was a committed man. This was a guy who had a compassionate heart for the needs of people and for the eternal well-being of their souls. And you look at him and you say, there's a life that I could model my life after. I'm not perfect. I'm going to fail. There are weaknesses within my life. But one thing I'm going to do, I'm going to do through the power of God, I'm going to live in front of you the way I talk in front of you. And you're going to find a consistent life. Is that how you're living? No facades. No walls. Just a life that's being painted beautifully. That's open to all to see. As you go on into the 19th verse, he continues. He says, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. He says, all right, here's another area for you to look at. Look at my service. I was serving you. And how did he do it? With humility. Serving the Lord with all humility. There was no arrogance with this man. He understood that it was the grace of God that set him apart to do the work of an apostle. He understood that it was by the grace of God that he was given forgiveness, that he was given life. And he looked at the reality of how he got to where he was and he knew it wasn't because of his own doing. It was God's doing. There was no arrogance. There was no pride. You would look at a man like the Apostle Paul and you would say, 
There's a guy that really got a lot done. Look at all the churches that he started. Look at all the people that he led to Christ. Look at all the believers that he helped build up in the faith. Look at all of the work this man did. All of the suffering he went through, and he did it willingly. And Paul would say back to you and me, anything that was done of eternal value was done by the power of God's Spirit and not me. That's why he could say, I served the Lord with all humility. It wasn't me. God could have chosen anyone he desired and he could have done the same thing through them that he did through me. But for some reason, by his grace, he chose me. He was not a dictator. He didn't snap his fingers and tell people what they should do. By force of his character and by the power of God's word, he would lay the truth out in front of people and then he would put upon their shoulders the responsibility to respond and do what they were supposed to do. Take a look. Look at his service. Look at the humility with which he serves. Look at the humility with which he demonstrated compassion to the people to whom he was sent to minister. He loved them. Not only did he sacrifice for the cause of Christ, but he sacrificed for the well-being of those people to whom he was ministering. I look at this life and I say, there is a life. And I look at this service and I say, there's a service to pattern my life after. You go on into the next verse. Into verse 20. You read this. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Now he shows us about his preaching or his teaching. For some of us, preaching will be an issue. But for most of us in this room, it's going to come down to the way we teach. It's going to come down to the things that we communicate. In some cases, maybe in a class. It's going to come down to the proclamation as he is describing it here in verse 20. Sometimes your teaching realm is going to be within your own home. It might be for the gentleman that you are going to be teaching your wives, which you should be. It might be for the wives that they will be teaching children, which if God sends children into your family, that is the right and the appropriate thing to do. But ask yourself this question. Did Paul back off? of teaching hard things? Never. He was always compassionate. He was always desirous to see the well-being of the people. But I want to tell you, there was no doctrine that he backed away from. Whatever it was that the Lord wanted him to proclaim, that's what he taught, no matter what. There was nothing hard that he had to address that he chose instead to tickle the ears of the people. He spoke what God told him to speak. And sometimes the, the messages were tough. I want to tell you, if you, if you don't think they were, uh, just read through 1 Corinthians, which will, Lord willing, be studying unless we're raptured in October now. 
I don't want to get off on that. There was no labor that he backed away from. You remember how he said, when I came to you, he said, I didn't do so drawing my support from you. It was churches from elsewhere that supported me. And I worked with my hands during the day, making tents, working with leather, working with the fabrics that are required. And then at night I taught you. There was nothing too hard for the accomplishment of the purpose for which Christ sent me. So we have his life. We have his service. We have his preaching, teaching, his proclamation. And then we have his passion. Look at this, verse 21. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. The way this verse is written, it introduces two elements that Paul focused upon. And this was the passion of his heart. He wanted people to understand that repentance was a necessary part of finding forgiveness and eternal life. But it's not the way we often think of repentance. When we think about repenting, we think about falling on our face, crying out, asking for forgiveness for our sins. But that's not really at the heart of of what repentance is about. Yes, sins are definitely involved. Sins are committed because of the very nature of sin that we have dwelling within us. And repentance is far more than saying, Lord, I'm sorry that I did this and got caught for it, or I'm actually just sorry because I did this and I know that it was wrong before you. I never should have done that. No, that's way too small. Real repentance says this, I am engulfed in the reality of sin, and from my very nature, I am a sinful person condemned to eternal eternal destiny away from God in eternal punishment, and I turn from my sin toward the true and the living God. And I look at that sin, and I say, God, by Your grace, You are the only one who can do something about that. And I am now turning to You in faith, Accepting that sacrifice that you provided through Jesus Christ. That was the Apostle Paul's message. Always. If you were uh, with us for commencement Friday night, you heard a very powerful, straightforward presentation of the gospel. Just as clear as it could possibly be. I was talking to Mr. Lopez, and what he said is really true. Nobody could leave the auditorium and say, I never heard what Jesus did for me. You know what Jesus did for you? What he did for me? He took all of my sin, all of your sin upon himself. And he paid the full price for that sin. I made a terrible mistake about half an hour ago. And you probably want to know what it is, don't you? you? Do you enjoy knowing when I blow it? Yeah, some of you think that that is the highlight of your day. All I have to do is tell you what I did wrong. Um, 
Do you like the song, How Great Thou Art? It's a wonderful song, great song. Communicates a tremendous message. But then in the second verse, here's what it says. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, send him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly sharing, he bled and died to take away my sin. I made that mistake. Did any of you catch it? He didn't share my burden. He bore my burden. There is a huge difference. I can't do anything to earn God's favor. Jesus did it all. My burden gladly bearing. He carried all of my sin and all of yours so that when you come to the realization of how serious your sin is and the implications of what that sin will do to you for all eternity, the only hope you have is to repent, turn away from that sin and embrace Jesus Christ through faith, recognizing that He paid for all your sins And there is nothing you can do to add to what he did at the cross of Calvary. And then he rose from the dead so that we could be declared righteous in the sight of God. That was Paul's passion. You don't have to be a pastor to tell people that. As a matter of fact, there's nothing that Paul is demonstrating that requires anyone to be a pastor. See, I think sometimes we get the idea, oh yeah, these are the things pastors should do. No! These are the things all of us should be doing. Paul is a role model in his imperfection for those of us who are in our imperfection to follow him. The things you've seen in me, do those. And the God of peace will be with you. He's put down quite a a list of things here for his ministry, his life, his service, his preaching, his passion. But then he says, now I want you to look beyond my ministry to just my life in the direction it's going. And he introduces us to some new thoughts. Listen to what happens as we go on here in verse 22. I'm going to read 22, 23, and 24 because these three go right together. He says, and see now, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry with which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You know what he's telling us about his life? He says, take a look at my life and I want you to follow the same pattern. There is a course to run. You all have a course. Paul had been given a course by the Lord. His course was unique. 
He was set apart in a very special way in direct communication with the resurrected Christ and he was put on a course and his goal and objective was to follow that course that the Lord had established for him. My question, no, it's not even to you, it's to me. And then it's to you. Am I on course? Am I on course? Sometimes people hear the voice of God. And those of you who gather with us know I am not speaking about an audible voice. But the impression of God's Holy Spirit as he takes the word of God. And God speaks to us. And he tells us, this is the way I want you to go. Are you on that way? Are you there? You see, your course is unique. No one else can duplicate what the Lord has called you to. You have a very special purpose by following the course that God has established for you in your life. Your experiences, your background, your disappointments, your joys, your training, your interaction, all makes up part of that course upon which you are walking. And you know what Paul says? I'm on course. Are you? As you go further into that passage, you begin to find out that nothing is going to keep him from following that course. There's no detour because of danger. Notice how he said there in verse 22. He says, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. In other words, the Spirit of God has given me this course and I'm going to follow it. Not knowing the things that will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. So, here's what Paul knows. He knows something that you and I don't know. He already knows what's lying ahead for him. I don't know what's lying ahead for me. I just know that God has a course for me to follow, and if I stay on that course today, and the next hour, and the next six hours, tomorrow, I'll be on that course. So it's a step-by-step thing. But here, Paul is beginning to see down the road, and he says, what I know is this, there is suffering and there are chains waiting for me when I get to Jerusalem. Was he right? He's going to be arrested in Jerusalem. He's going to be imprisoned in Jerusalem. He's going to have people try to kill him in Jerusalem and on his way out of Jerusalem. And he is going to go in chains to Caesarea where he is going to remain for a period of time. But he also knows this. That's part of my course. That's part of what the Lord has established for me to do. And so I'm going to do it. There's no detour here. I know there's going to be trouble down there. So? So what? I'm ready to die for the Lord. And that takes us to the next. His death, no matter how it came, was going to be in triumph. That's what dying on the course the Lord has established for us does. I hate to admit this to you. I watched American Idol. (laughs) 
The young man that uh, won, from what we're hearing, is a believer. He goes to a Baptist church in North Carolina. I pray for him that the Lord will protect him. But you remember when he sang with uh, McGraw? All I can remember is Tug McGraw because he's one of the great Philly pitchers. It's his son, Tim McGraw. See, I'm not that big into it. But they sang a song together that I really like. Do you guys? Did, how many of you? How many of you saw? Uh, yeah, see, you laughed at me, <laughs> stinkers. Okay, they sang the song about. I wish that you, or I hope that you could live like you are dying. He said, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named, is it Fu Manchu? Is that what it is? Fu Manchu. And then he said, I learned to love deeper. And to speak sweeter. And then something about to forgive those against whom I have been holding things. It is not a song we're going to sing in church. But there's some good thoughts there. You know what he was singing? When I die, it's going to be in triumph. Take that and appropriate that concept to every believer's life, and when we get to the end of our lives, will it be in triumph? Not for our own glory, but for the glory of Christ. He continues with that theme of of not knowing what's going to happen. So he gives us one more thought, that we would die in the discharge of our duty that we would die in the discharge of our duty. God has given us duties to perform. He's given us the privilege to serve him and to do it dutifully. I'm going to ask you not to say amen because you will say it at the wrong time. Okay? There is a sense in which the rapture is such a blessed hope because it is going to get us out of this sin-cursed, evil world. Don't say amen. And it will do that. But if that's the reason you have a hope, you're wrong. When we die, it's not to escape. It's to conclude. I finished the race. I kept the faith. I followed that course that the Lord has laid out for me. And I'm not escaping this world. My job is done. Wouldn't that be a great way to die? My job is done. Now, Lord, I'm ready to go. And as you're walking on that course that he's established for you, you'll never go home a moment sooner than you should. Kind of neat to know, isn't it? 
Never a moment before the job is finished. He's given us great hope. Paul looked forward in hope, regardless of the things that came into his life, because he knew what Christ had done for him. You and I can have that same hope. Follow his pattern. Young people, there's a role model. Let's stand. Let me remind our elders that there's a a meeting that's going to take place right after the service, and we're going to meet in Miletus, which is 30 miles south of Ephesus. (laughs) No, I'm not sure. Where, Where are we going to meet? George, up in the meeting room? Okay. Pardon me? Oh, it's the deacons? Oh, it's not the elders. Oh, you weren't aware of any meeting, George. See, I'm glad Paul had a lot of weaknesses and imperfections. Okay, I guess it's going to be the deacons. We're going to meet up in the the room. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this privilege. Thank you for allowing us to look into the life of a man who established for us a tremendous pattern to follow. And we identify with him because he was just as we are, sinful, weak, failing. And yet he established a a pattern of life and ministry that we can follow for the purpose of bringing glory to you. Thank you for allowing that. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day.